if you know, you know, you know what the feeling of too busy to be happy looks like. You can feel it. You've seen it. You've been in the moment where that's exactly the truth. Like you are too busy to be happy in the moment. As much as it would be nice for all of us to go sit on a mountain and not be busy and not have the commitments of work and family and all the things that we're dealing with, what I want to encourage every person to think about is what does busy and happy look like for you? So just kind of noticing how those two ideas kind of go back and forth. Oh, here I am. I'm too busy to be happy again. Oh, here I am. I'm busy and happy. You know, growing the awareness of what those two things look like for you so that you can gravitate towards busy and happy more often. That would be my parting words of wisdom. Welcome to the Positive Productivity Podcast. Episode 586. The Positive Productivity Podcast was created to empower entrepreneurs to achieve and appreciate personal and professional success. I'm your host, Kim Sutton, and if you're ready, let's jump into today's episode. Welcome back to another episode of Positive Productivity. This is your host, Kim Sutton, and I'm so happy to have you here today. And I know you are going to be as excited about this episode as I am, because today we have Christine LaPerrier, who is the founder of Leader in Motion, the executive director of Women of Influence in Toronto, and also the author of Too Busy to Be Happy. You know, if you've been listening for a while, that I am a mama five. I have this podcast. I'm trying to write a book, and I have a business with a team on the back end. So when I heard Too Busy to Be Happy... It hit me in the heart because I'm like, I don't want to be like that. But listeners, you know, I'm very transparent and sometimes I really am too busy. So Christine, welcome. I was about to say welcome so much, but that is not proper English. Welcome to Positive Productivity, where we have lawnmowers from our neighbors in the backyard. I am so happy to have you and I can't wait to jump right in. Thank you so much, Kim. I'm so thrilled to be here. Oh, you are so welcome. I would love if you would share a little bit of your journey with the listeners and share how you got to where you are today. Sure. Um, I'll just start by saying that, you know, in the book, you know, talking about too busy to be happy is kind of my my favorite topic at the moment. And, you know, real quick as to kind of how the journey happened is I am definitely a recovering maybe always struggling workaholic. I have, um, you know, my husband likes to joke, like, go do a few more shots of workahol because you're not, you know, that seems to be what you want right now. But I am definitely a recovering workaholic. And I found that the title of the book was really important for me because if I look at my history, too busy to be happy is definitely, it's like my never ending struggle is to move away from that set point. So, you know, I've had a background as an engineer, started designing cars, always extremely ambitious. So I, you know, finished a master's degree in engineering in the first couple of years of my designing cars, had to take a leap, moved to Toronto, wanted to get into manufacturing, worked 60 to 70 hour weeks, launching vehicles, which is a very, you know, stressful, very intense work environment. You know, I'm 25 year old female in a room with, you know, hundreds of 55 to 60 year old manufacturing uh, men who were, you know, very aggressive. And I kind of had to, you know, fit into that culture, working really hard and then made the leap into management consulting. And again, working around the clock was promoted very quickly. And, you know, I think for me, I talk about it in the book, but there was a moment where I had a real serious burnout. And it was not until that moment that I realized that 
you know, I had just become very addicted to stress, very addicted to working, and I had completely lost sight of how to have a high quality life. Oh my gosh. Okay. I have to go back, take another shot of workahol. I'm going to have to borrow that. <laughs> yes. That is like every day here. Yes. But it's not because I feel forced to work all the time, but maybe you can understand this. I love what I do. Right. And I find it really hard, really difficult to watch TV and to relax because mm-hmm. I'm thinking about, oh, I want to do this. Oh, I want to do that. I mean, my laptop is a permanent fixture around me. Some people, you know, are, are addicted to their their smartphones. I'm addicted to my laptop, my laptop and my work and building. Right. Rooms. So I, I have totally, the same. You have it too. Yes, I have that too. I yeah. like to be constantly doing, going, you know, dreaming big, and you know, all of that's great. But that real strong what I would call like the part of my personality that I really love. And I'm really happy I was born with whatever that is. Meanwhile, it can tip over and backfire on you. And that's exactly what the point of the book is, is, you know, recognizing that just because you're ambitious and you're, you know, really reaching for big things in life. I think, you know, we, we have a culture of like, get out there and do it and make big things happen and dream big. And we have all of this like motivational rah-rah. But unfortunately for me, I, bought into that so much that I lost sight of just having a high quality moment right now. Me too. Absolutely. And I want to share another thing. I actually went into interior architecture, so I totally get being surrounded by older men, you know, and it's quite a different environment. And I was working a lot. I started in Manhattan and then went to Chicago, no, other way around, and then wound up here in Ohio. But I ended up uh, losing my job in 2008 and actually ended up working for Honda. So I, I'm just finding all the, right. you know, the synchronicities, is that the right word? Right. Very amusing, but I was in the parts manufacturer. But after I started my business, it was all about hustle. Hustle, hustle, right. hustle. I can't stand that word anymore. Do I hustle? Yes. But I don't call it hustle anymore because I don't think we should be sacrificing sleep. And then in 2016, I had a complete meltdown because I was sleep deprived and hustling too much. Right. Right. I love what you are doing. How did you transition though out of a job and into your own business? What did that journey look like to you? Oh, it's actually quite an incredible one. So in right around the same time as you, uh, 2007, I was working in management consulting. I'd taken a leadership role in the business development side and was, you know, again, working really hard. And I took a neuro-linguistic programming course. And this is kind of a funny story and might be might resonate with some of your listeners. So I took this NLP course and the instructor kept getting us to do visualizations. And I kept saying, I want to be in business for myself in five years. And she kept saying, the problem is, is the subconscious mind doesn't understand what five years means. It doesn't, you know, it's either picture an elephant or don't picture an elephant, but there is no such thing as picturing an elephant in five years. And so I kept saying, well, yeah, yeah, I get that. But I want to start a business in five years when I'm ready, quote unquote. Well, I had done all this visualization work in my NLP class as I was learning the skills to practice NLP. And that was, that program ended in June. And I hadn't been particularly in love with my job, you know, that, I, that kind of new role that I was in. And I remember very distinctly early July sitting down, you know, working on something with my boss 
And it just got to a point where it was just difficult. And I was kind of at a head and I looked at him and said, you know, I'm going to put in my three month notice. And he's like, what? <laughs> and he's like, I'm going to finish this role in three months and I'm going to move on to start my own business. And he's like, are you sure? And so anyway, we kind of, you know, the company I worked with, we did some negotiation around, could we change roles? Could I modify my job? Could I do something different? And at the end of the day, I came down to just saying, oh, I really want to start my own business. So the irony was, is that my first day in business for myself, president of Leader Emotion was October 1st, 2008. So for those of you that might remember this, Lehman Brothers went out at filed for bankruptcy September 22nd. So my timing couldn't have been worse. I walked away from a very fantastic salary to start my own business with no plan, no backup, no cash, no like did not have any of it figured out and off off I went. And so I can't say that I would suggest everybody try it that that way, but it was pretty incredible that you know at the time everyone kept telling me if you can start a business in this environment you'll always be able to run a business. And so for me, it was a lot of digging deep around the psychology. First of all, I paid a lot of attention to you know the good news and the bad news and how much bad news I was watching every day. I paid attention to my cheerleaders and really trying to block out the noise of the people who are the naysayers. There's always people... And in 2008, you know, everyone was scared about what the future of their careers looked like and what the future of businesses looked like. And so, you know the naysayers weren't even wrong. Like there were legitimate reasons why they were right. It was a scary time to start a business. And so that was kind of how I got my start. And somehow, like I said, somehow I'm still here 11 years later. That is amazing. Because what is the statistic? Like 50% of businesses or 80% of businesses fail within the first five years. Yeah. And you started at, I mean, in the last decade, or let's just call it two decades, you started really at the most difficult time. Some would argue that 2001 may have been difficult too, but I, I would have to go with 2008, 2009. Yeah. yeah. I remember after I lost my job, I was designing schools. I went to a local networking group and because we have a whole lot of GM parts manufacturers down here in Dayton, there were a lot of people who had lost their jobs and received nice severance packages and were starting businesses. And thinking about it now, and this is something I haven't thought about in years, but the ideas that they had, like it makes me curious about where those people are now because some of them just had no idea what they were doing, but I didn't have any idea what I was doing. I was trying to start an interior design company of my own. And I was right. same as you, I wasn't passionate. Like I quickly discovered after I graduated college, it just wasn't what I imagined it to be. Right, right. I think I imagined the lifestyle, but not actually the work. Does that make any sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I grew up watching Ghost, Patrick Swayze, Demi Moore, and I was thinking, okay, I'm going to move to Manhattan and live in this incredible loft and make lots of money. And yeah, that's not quite how it was. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I've ever shared on a podcast before. I did not live in Manhattan. The renters agents or the rental agents left me right out of the city. Like, sweetie. The only way that your salary is going to afford an apartment in Manhattan is if you live in a closet of a like a five bedroom apartment. Like, okay, <laughs> right? Oh I will go God. live somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. So, wow. What are some of the keys? Do you think that actually helps you thrive? Maybe thrive is too strong of a word, but survive through mm-hmm. that rough economy. 
You know, one of the things that I think of is a lot of what I'm talking about in the book is this concept of emotional real estate. So basically what I explain is that if your brain is the house and your emotional real estate is your front yard, and it's this fixed amount of real estate that you have to process decision-making, worry, emotion, concern, you know, fear of the future, fear of the past, whatever that happens to be, you have a fixed amount of emotional real estate for it. And so what I think in retrospect, even though I couldn't articulate this at the time, I still think the reason that I was able to work through that year, you know, the 2008, 2009, 2010 part of my business was because somehow over a lot of training and a lot of experience, I had started to develop these tools about managing my emotional real estate. So for example, you know, when I started my business and I would sit and watch CNN first thing in the morning that would have all the stories about people going bankrupt and all of the, you know, the crisis that was happening and people walking away from their homes and losing everything, that would use up so much emotional real estate for me that I would be completely frozen in action. And so I started to become really conscious of this. That's such that is using up so much energy for me that I can't do that anymore. So I actually one of the things I did is I switched to Hay House Radio, which had a lot of positive speakers before podcasts were really a big thing yet. They had so many podcasts with people who were focused on very positive things and empowering things that I spent my days listening to that and kind of deciding that that was actually giving me back emotional real estate. It was energizing me and it would free up my energy in order to take action. So I knew for a fact that I could move forward. Another thing that I you know, became really aware of is that anytime I was in front of a customer, I was refueling my energy. And so I found that being in front of customers was really the reason why I was going into business in the first place. That was giving me back emotional real estate. So I made the focus of my day about how to get in front of more customers. You know, I really stayed away from hiding behind my desk and trying to build the perfect website so that when people came, they were going to magically buy from me. I think a lot of entrepreneurs make that mistake that somehow yeah, they do. if their website is just good enough or it's, the wording is right or you know the pictures are right, that people are going to magically think that they're worth buying from. And I really threw that out. And when, when I'm talking to people and I'm working with people and I'm adding value to people, that's when I love being in business for myself. And I made that the primary focus. And then there was another thing I paid really close attention to. At the time, I had a fantastic mentor and he used to challenge me over and over again. Every time I would start to lose my confidence and people kept offering me jobs, like that was kind of happening where people would say, hey, well, you know, why don't you come work for me or why don't you come do this? And he'd say, stay focused, just stay focused. And, and so I'd call him and I'd be like, you know, this one company wants to hire me to do this. And I'm thinking maybe that's a better idea than starting my own business. And he'd be like, stay focused. Just, he goes, you didn't even give it a shot. Like you haven't actually even pursued this well enough to know whether or not this is what you want. So just stay focused long enough that you can find out for yourself if this is what you really want. And so there was that powerful piece of messaging and it goes back to that emotional real estate. Like I was so quick to give emotional real estate out to people who wanted to partner, people who wanted to like, you know, oh, maybe you could sell my stuff and then I'd have to use a bunch of emotional real estate to try to figure out how would that work. One thing I try to, you know, tell other entrepreneurs is like, 
be so rigorous with that emotional real estate. Treat it just like you treat your time. Treat it just like you treat your money. If somebody comes to me and they want a quote unquote partner, I get really cautious about how much emotional real estate it's going to take up and whether or not it's going to do a nice return on investment because it's not that maybe that partnership won't cost me any money, but I'm going to have to use my energy to figure out how to go down this path together. And I want to be really conscious of the fact that I need my emotional real estate to also serve my customers, sell new business, innovate, build the strategy for the future. So I have only a fixed amount and I'm really conscious of how I budget it. I absolutely love that. How about pick your brain sessions? Hey, Christine, can we hop on a quick call? How have you handled that? Because it's still happening to me. Like, hey, Kim, can I pick your brain for a moment? Right. And and I'm learning how to say no. Right. It's taken me too long. I'm just going to put it that way, too long to say no. Well, and it's funny because that's exactly the kind of thing. So my assistant knows I've got a small window in my calendar set aside for short half hour conversations each week. And those are kind of my people who want to have a coffee or want to touch base or kind of want to chat. I only have a few slots, very, very limited. And if it's not revenue generating or it's not delivering value to a customer, those slots are very limited. And for me, you know, it's even right now, somebody was asked to get a coffee recently and it was like, okay, you know, the date is July 29th right now. That's fine. Like, I don't feel bad about that because at the end of the day, I only have so much emotional real estate and I only have so much time and I have to use that budget really stringently in order for me to have success in my business. You actually just made me feel so much better. And I know you are my guest here on the podcast, but... As the host of the podcast, I can't tell you how many people, I mean, we get dozens of submissions a week, dozens. I mean, there's some days that we get a dozen submissions to be a guest. And then people see how far out we're booking. I mean, you had to wait six months. It's more, it's way more than six months right now. And there's people who get a little bit testy about it being six months and want us to open up another day in my schedule so that they can get on sooner. And I've had to, just in the past month, really be more adamant about no. Right. Because I am finally kicking the butt of time blocking. Right. It took so long to get to this point. I mean, I used to think that time blocking would be good if I even just designated a morning to content and then the afternoon was clients. But I'm at the point now where Mondays and Fridays are all me. Right. And it's not so I can go to the pool. Right now, it's not so I can go to the pool with my family. Right now, it's actually so I can focus on content. Maybe it will turn into so I can spend more time with the family. I would love that. But no, I'm not going to take a Monday because you want to get on my podcast sooner because this is how we do it. And I I feel sort of, I'm just going to say the word that comes to mind, but I feel a little bit bitchy when my (laughs) team and I are talking about it once in a while. I'm like, they have to understand that this is my show. Right. Our show. It's not meant to cater to, the, to their calendar. And I think, you know, it's a classic example. First of all, you know, your, your point about time blocking, another giant way that we can make better use of emotional real estate. So every time you stop and start an activity, it uses emotional real estate. And so I find, you know, it's kind of like that decision fatigue or that activity fatigue where to your exact point, 
if I take coaching sessions on Monday, which Monday is my admin day, it's my day to do all the things behind the scenes that I need to do to run my business. If I take coaching sessions that day, it's like I'm hitting the gas and then the brake and then the gas and then the brake and I never get through anything. And it takes a lot of emotional real estate for me to, for instance, start doing taxes and expense reports because those things use up a lot of energy for me. I don't enjoy them, but they have to get done and they're part of running my business. And so, you know, I'm very conscious of how I schedule my week so that those things that take up a lot of emotional real estate for me, I get those done, but I have to, you know, I can't sacrifice that just because somebody else came along and decided that they think they know better for what my time is. I, I find it amazing how we kind of in our current society with uh, all the technology we have, we're like setting expectations on other people to give us their time and their energy and their attention when I feel like we need to become much more frugal about how we give that away. Absolutely. There's people who are shocked that I took Facebook Messenger off my phone. I love removing social media channels, to be honest. I detox sometimes. I'll Mm -hmm. delete everything off my phone for a weekend because I can sense that I'm losing my ability to be present. Mm -hmm. And it's very common for me to take all my social media off my phone. And then I'll add it back when I feel like I'm ready to reconnect. But I find, you know, same thing. Somebody said that to me. Oh, you're never on social. I never see you on social. And I'm like, you know what? That's completely okay. I'm fully present with my children. And, you know, I will be on social when it's appropriate and it feels right for me. Absolutely. I wanted to take a quick break from today's episode and ask you if you need to take a break from your business. Maybe you're working too many hours. Maybe you're trying to work on too many things. Maybe you have too many clients who just really aren't aligned with your greater purpose. If this sounds like you, I want to offer you an opportunity to join the Positive Productivity Pod, my monthly mentorship and coaching community. For only a dollar, you can jump in, get started, and enjoy 10 days in the community where you will meet so many awesome entrepreneurs. And then twice a month, you'll be able to hop on a live call with all of us and get the feedback that you need in that very moment for your business. If you're interested in starting today for only a dollar, head on over to thekimsutton.com forward slash pod to get started. I forget what the system is called. It might be the Eisenhower method or Pareto principle or something like that. One of them, it's, well, I'm thinking of a mix actually now of the 80-20 rule and also staying in the box of what's important and urgent or what's important and non-urgent. Right. And I've I've been really focusing this year on staying in the important non-urgent because if it gets to the urgent, something went wrong. Right. Right. And, and also the 80, 20 rule. Like I, oh my gosh, I give myself probably more guilt than I should. The nights where I find myself, okay, I'll hop into Facebook just to see what's going on with one person. And then two hours later, it's like, I'm still in there. It's like, this is, right. what are you doing? You have other stuff to do. Right. So that's why I had to remove it. Like I have Instagram on my phone because you like that's how you do Instagram, but I'm not in there. It's definitely not the first thing that I check in the morning, but I'm very purposeful with any yeah. social media and I probably am not as social. Well, not even probably. I know I'm not as social as I should be, but I have the podcast, I have blog, I have email 
you know, I have other ways of being social. Right. Need to go in and just get caught up. And I love how you're talking about emotional real estate because there's just always so much drama. Right. Getting offended when I started unfollowing or unfriending. It's like, look, I don't have time. Like, I'm not coming on social media to see whatever drama. And that, that doesn't mean I'm a fair weather friend. It just means. I'm unfollowing you and I'll connect. I'm not unfriending you, but I'm unfollowing you because that's not what I want to see when I come on here. Well, and what I would even say is when you say I don't have time, the truth is, is you don't have the emotional real estate because it doesn't take that much time to read somebody's, let's say, political rant on Facebook. But the truth is, is that if that political rant is affecting your mood and using up emotional real estate for you, it's a drain. And so I have the same thing where I protect my energy. I'm really conscious about that. You know, we use the term, I don't have time a lot. And I always say like, it's interesting to notice, is it the time or the energy? And to be just as like, I don't have the energy, like I don't have the available emotional real estate to read whatever nonsense Mm -hmm. you're going to put up. And it's not giving me back anything. There's no Mm -hmm. ROI. So what I am conscious of is I have, thankfully, I would say, you know, a great big number of friends that I genuinely want to see pictures of their kids. I genuinely want to hear about the great things that are happening at work. I genuinely want to see pictures on Father's Day of them, you know, three or four generations all, you know, lined up and having a picnic in their backyard. I love that. That makes me happy to see that my friends and, you know, even friends from high school are have gone on to have these really happy lives. I'm all for that. That gives me back emotional real estate, but certain people and certain posts and certain noise, like I don't need it. So that's where I get really conscious of getting that out of my psyche. I'm going to have to use that though. It's really isn't that I don't have time and it really is. I don't have the energy Mm -hmm. and I don't want to have the energy. I'm not going to give you my part of my fixed Mm -hmm. amount. So I only get to budget this much. And by the way, when you're busy with children, which you and I, you know, both have that experience of, it takes a lot of emotional real estate for me to help make sure that, you know, my toddler still knows how to, you know, use the bathroom in the right amount of time. And I guess still, I, I have to use a lot of emotional real estate to make sure we've got all the right food in the house and they've got, you know, the clothes that they need. And then, you know, school, God forbid, like the 32 different things that you need to remember to do for that. And like immunizations <laughs> and doctor's appointments and dentist yes. appointments and it never ends. So I'm using up plenty of my available bandwidth with that. I'm using up a lot of bandwidth for my, you know, my work and then my friends, and my family. But that's why I say like to be so selective because my experience of burnout was when I decided that I had unlimited emotional real estate and I didn't say no to anything. So if you, you know, I would hold on to garbage from the past. If you offended me on this conversation, I'd still be thinking about it for four days. And if you came along and you wanted to partner, I would never say no because the optimist in me would be like, okay, well, let's talk about it. And so I'd spend, you know, hours going down rabbit holes, you know, wasting lots of time and wasting lots of emotional real estate trying to do that and then juggle having an effective business. So I think when I look at it now, there's just the laser focus of what I'm going to use that budget for instead of trying to do all things. What did the worst of the burnout journey look like for you? And I know this isn't positive productivity, but I really want, if you wouldn't mind sharing, I know it would help people because I know there's listeners who are experiencing it. For me, it's such a good question, actually. And I'm really glad you asked because what it looked like. So I 
was in a really busy stage. And then all of a sudden I was traveling every week for work. So I was on a plane Monday morning, on a plane Thursday night, managing two teams, one in Toronto, one in New Jersey. And all that being said, I stopped. I started to slowly over time say no to things that I enjoyed. So, you know, didn't have time for friends with dinner, didn't have time to go home and see my family in Michigan, didn't have time to go do things. My relationship ended up falling apart, which was a good thing at the end of the day. But, you know, I was kind of holding on to some baggage around that. And what I kept doing is working harder and harder as a way to kind of fill space. What I also found is that I started to create this breathing problem. So I was sighing all the time and I couldn't catch my breath. And when I went to the doctor, it started into a whole battery, long, long battery of tests. Why can't I breathe? So it was allergy tests, chest x-rays, everything. After this long period of, like I said, must have been about eight different types of testing, the doctor came back and said, I have to say, like, I can't find anything wrong with you. I think you have a stress-related illness and I'm going to prescribe you Ativan. And I said, well, when do I come off of Ativan? And he said, when you learn how to manage your stress. There really is no time that you're going to come off this Ativan. And I remember thinking, like, I'm starting to take a drug just to survive my day-to-day life. And he's like, learn how to manage your stress. Like, what does that mean? Like, how is it that learn how to manage your stress? Like, we say it like it's simple, but it's not. But anyway, that was going on as one kind of layer of the story. And meanwhile, I'm in this really busy job where I'm traveling back and forth. And I remember laying in bed one day and thinking, oh my God, I just can't get out of bed. Like just the idea of another day, I just can't get out of bed. And I got out of bed and I showered and I'm getting ready and I'm trying to put my mascara on the mirror and my eyes are filling up with tears and I can't get my mascara on. So it started to become a thing where in the morning when I would get ready for work, my eyes would fill up with tears and I would slip my mascara into my pocket and I'd put it on just as I arrived at the client. So just before I'd get out of the car, I'd have to put my mascara on because I'd be so emotional in the morning trying to get out of bed. I felt like I just can't stand doing another day of this. And the real pinnacle, like the real kind of (laughs) the point where all of a sudden I had to change was required. I woke up one day and I was laying in bed and having that feeling of dread about my day. And all of a sudden I thought to myself, I need a break, but it can't just be a vacation. It can't just be a long weekend. That's not enough. I need a real break. You know what I need to do is I need to get sick, like really sick, like cancer. And I actually thought to myself, if I could just get sick, I could get a break and people would give me permission. People wouldn't judge me because I got sick and they would think that it was instead of judging me for needing to take a break, they would feel sorry for me and they would give me permission to take a break. And it was, thank God I was raised. My mom was always a big fan of positive psychology and, you know, big fan of recognizing like the connection of the brain. And so her and I both have been a fan of Louise Hay and a lot of these really great thought leaders around what you think is kind of what you create. And I'm just so thankful that I had that in my back pocket because when I heard myself actually think about attracting cancer, I just had a wake-up call. I'm like, this is insane. I need a break. We actually went to my boss and I asked for a leave of absence. And I remember his response being, what if I don't want to give you a leave of absence? I asked for, I think, eight weeks. He said, what if I don't want to? Because it was during an important client project and you know all the reasons why, because there's never a good time to take a break. There has never been a day when you know, the world doesn't need you and you can take a break. Um, but he was, you know, what if I don't want to? And I said, if, if not, I'm going to quit. And he said, okay, well, I guess I'm giving you a leave of absence then. And so I took 
two month leave of absence. And I went to Italy, like every, <laughs> every uh, red blooded American girl does. And um, it was fantastic. And it, it really took me, I remember so specifically, like the first week I was just in a haze because I didn't even know how to break free of that alcohol. You know, like we were talking about the workaholism, like it was kind of a big adjustment for me to go from having worked so intensely to just stopping. But by like week two or week three, I mean, I remember... I started to laugh a lot more. My sense of humor came back. I remember like walking down the streets with one, you know, one of my best friends came with me for a little bit of the trip and we were laughing and laughing and all the muscles in my cheeks actually felt sore because that's how long it had been since I had really laughed and really smiled. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, it was like my brain actually rewired. I could feel it. It was like my literally felt like a new person after about four or five weeks of really being away from all of it and just focusing on nurturing my spirit. You have my, my brain going in so many different directions right now. I love, I mean, I'm, well, the first thing I was actually just thinking about was eat, pray, love. Yes. And that I, was part of the inspiration, I will admit. Really? Okay. <laughs> yes. Because I know I've never shared this part on the podcast before. I've shared that I was in the mental hospital in 2008. That was because of severe burnout. Yep. I wasn't taking care of myself and I started hallucinating. It was that bad. And I read Eat, Pray, Love when I was yeah. in the mental hospital. And I was just like, wow. But I remember that feeling of, oh, I need a break. But I have to tell you, when I was in the mental hospital, they put me on Prozac, Wellbutrin, and Ativan. Wow. Yep. And it numbed me. Like I was no longer me. Right. Listeners, I just want you to know, like, I'm not angry. I have learned to forgive and keep on going because getting caught up in what happens yesterday is not going to help us reach the goals of tomorrow, right? Or even of today. But I got fired by my psychiatrist because I took myself off the drugs. But the reason I took myself off the drugs was because I will tell you that specifically Ativan, I actually started abusing it mm -hmm. to the point that. <laughs> this is what I've never shared on the podcast before, and this is a lot of TMI. On two separate occasions, I wound up in a tattoo piercing parlor, and I got various things pierced that are no longer pierced. So I'll just put it that way. This is not me. I mean, right? this is not me. I, right. I, and of the appropriate piercings that I can share on the podcast, I mean, my nose was pierced, my tongue was pierced. I was still working my full-time job, and I was expected to keep up you know, some respectable appearance. And I'm not saying that a tongue piercing and a nose piercing are not, but when I can't even have client meetings because I'm, you know, I can't even talk right. because my tongue is swollen three times as large. That's a problem. Right. Yeah. Right. But I have been there. I want to focus on your book, but I do want to ask, have you read The Big Leap? Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. I'm a big fan. Okay. So Gay Hendricks, The Big Leap. And I read it in 2018. Coincidentally, in 2018, I was admitted, I went to the ER four times and I was admitted to the hospital once. And I do feel like I did it to myself because I just needed that break. And I know in The Big Leap, he talks about when something big is going to happen, that often you do self-sabotage in a way. Right. And oh my gosh, I made a commitment to myself in 2019 that I would not wind up in the ER for my own, you know, illness or sickness or stress-induced causes. And so far, I've taken care of myself to such a level that I haven't. I haven't even had to go to the doctor yet. 
and we're we're almost seven months in. For me, that is a record, right? A lifelong mm-hmm. record. So I want to ask you one last question: How did your book come to be? In 2012, I got invited to teach a course called Mastering Me. And I remember rolling my eyes at the gentleman who gave me the mandate that it was the title of the course had to be Mastering Me. And I remember thinking, what a weird title for a course. So I was really trying to think about what I had mastered that was useful. I was teaching a room full of female executives at the time, and it was, it needed to be something important, you know, like a toolkit, something helpful for this room full of female executives that were part of this program. And long story short, as I kept going, what have I mastered? Like what's helpful that I really think would, you know, come together. And so I had already been coaching and using this concept of emotional real estate and a couple other tools. And so I started to pull it together as a kind of a toolkit of how to really access work-life wisdom. So, you know, what I've kind of nicknamed my work-life wisdom. And long story short is I taught this toolkit and I actually told the story, my own story of burnout. Somebody walked up to me at the end of the day. And I remember this, I was so scared to tell that story about burnout and the story about wanting cancer. I I felt so embarrassed as like probably the most vulnerable story for me. And this woman walked up to me and she said, that's my story. Like I actually have laid in bed and thought about getting sick. You know, the fact that you told that just it's so eye-opening to me that I'm not alone. And in addition, you know, the tools that I had given in the course, she said, like, I want to know where to read more. Where did you get this? And I said, well, I kind of stole a little bit from NLP and a little bit from transformative coaching and a little bit from psychotherapy. Like I've I've trained on pretty much everything, but I kind of took a little taste of this and a taste of that and kind of created this toolkit. And she's like, oh, I wish there was a book. And so over time, I've been teaching a lot of courses to really high-powered female execs. And long story short is like each time they always come up to me and they say, first of all, like, wow, that story, I've been there. I get that. And then they always ask, where can I read more about this toolkit? And so I finally felt like I had a calling. Like I finally, you know, I always wanted to write a book, but I always wondered what I had to say. And, you know, when people come up to you and they keep saying, wow, thank you for sharing that. I feel like that's the sign that that makes, then somebody needs that book. And so that's where the book came from. That is so beautiful. Now for listeners who are wondering, you can go to the show notes, which are at thekimsutton.com forward slash PP586, where there will be a link for too busy to be happy. Because I want to make sure that, especially if you are in need of it, that you can go get it right away. But Christine, where else can listeners find you online and get to know more about the work you do? Absolutely. So there's a website for the book, which is myworklifewisdom.com. Instagram is also myworklifewisdom.com. And then obviously the business that I run today, which is focused on um, growing high potential talent, that's Leader in Motion. You can also find me at leaderinmotion.com or at leaderinmotion.com. So if you go into LinkedIn, you can definitely um, find my personal page. You're more than welcome to reach out and connect. I'm always you know, kind of open to meet new people. So you know, you can find me in lots of, lots of places, but those are the two spots. Awesome. So if you are too busy to write those down or are driving or trying not to burn dinner, those again will all be on the show notes at thekimsutton.com forward slash PP586. Christine, thank you so much for joining us today. You have inspired me. I, I love that I'm no longer going to be saying I don't have time. It's not about time. It is about energy. So I want to thank you so much for that. 
But I would love to know if you have a parting piece of advice or a golden nugget for our listeners. I think the parting piece of advice is if you know, you know, you know what the feeling of too busy to be happy looks like. You can feel it. You've seen it. You've been in the moment where that's exactly the truth. Like you are too busy to be happy in the moment. As much as it would be nice for all of us to go sit on a mountain and not be busy and not have the commitments of work and family and all the things that we're dealing with, what I want to encourage every person to think about is what does busy and happy look like for you? So just kind of noticing how those two ideas kind of go back and forth. Oh, here I am. I'm too busy to be happy again. Oh, here I am. I'm busy and happy. You know, growing the awareness of what those two things look like for you so that you can gravitate towards busy and happy more often. That would be my parting words of wisdom. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Positive Productivity Podcast. When I'm not podcasting, I'm supporting six to seven figure business coaches with their marketing automation and entrepreneurs like you through my coaching and mastermind programs. I want to invite you to visit thekimsutton.com to learn how I can help you take your business to the next level. Ah!